This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am thrilled to be kicking off 2024 with author Philip Yancey. Philip's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, has sold over 2 million copies. Philip revised and updated his classic, which was re-released in 2023. Today, he joins me to discuss the profound reality of God's grace lavished on people, not because of what we do, but because of who He is. Speaking of impactful books, this is the time of year many of you may be compiling a to-be-read list. If you're looking to add to your list, I've compiled eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me. You can download that list at graceenoughpodcast.com slash books. That's graceenoughpodcast.com slash books. Philip Yancey, welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Thank you. I couldn't turn down a podcast with a name like that. <laughs> I'm glad that we are having a conversation about grace on what is the 25th anniversary of what's so amazing about grace. What does it feel like to think that that book, that your book has been in the world for 25 years? It feels old. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is we wanted to update things for, there's a whole new generation of yes. readers. And I went through, and then we got some millennials to go through, and the things they came up with were so funny. It's like, who is Al Gore? Um, <laughs> and what is Yugoslavia? Oh, my you goodness. Think about it, the world has changed quite a bit in the last 25 years. Sadly, there are still plenty of examples of what I call ungrace in the world. Yeah. The need for grace may be greater now by far than it was 25 years ago. We're, we're in a yeah. divided, polarized society and world. I know, right? Was it hard to look back through and say, goodness, have we come, like, have we made progress? Was that a hard thing? Yeah, it was. Um, I originally, as I mentioned in the in the preface to the book, I originally titled this book, What's So Amazing About Grace and Why Don't Christians Show More of It? <laughs> and, and, and I I did that because I had done this little survey, just very informal survey, when I was sitting next to somebody in a doctor's lounge or in an airplane or something. Mm -hmm. I would say, when I see the word Christian or evangelical Christian, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Mm -hmm. And they would say uh, morally superior or good people or uh, holier than thou or anti, you know, anti-abortion, anti-gay, whatever. And not one time did anybody say something that sounded like grace. And I thought, boy, that's strange. Here's this one great gift that we have to offer the world, and we must not be doing a very good job of doing it. Mm. So I came up with this book title, and the publisher didn't like it. They said, that's a little in your face. And then they said, (laughs) 
He said, and besides, you can't fit that many words on the spine of a book. So <laughs> they got me to shorten it to what's so amazing about grace. And, and it really changed nature as I was writing it. It became more kind of a theological exploration of grace, just trying to understand the whole concept. We know it's important, but it's, yeah. it's slippery. It's hard to define, hard to describe. It is. So uh, we got it out there. And then, my goodness, looking back, that world 25 years ago just seemed so simple. And and uh, and it did not did, at the time, did it? <laughs> it did not. Well, at the yeah, things were really starting to heat up politically. Bill Clinton was in office and he was kind of a consensus president. You know, he got a lot of votes from the South, which had been uh, primarily Republican. And mm-hmm. and then um, this, the Monica Lewinsky scandals were front page news with that. You know, that looks so small compared to what we're facing now with a war mm-hmm. in the Middle East and a war in Europe and uh, Congress. And the political so divide right now oh, is just insane. Goodness. Yeah, it really is. In those days, there were still people on both sides of the aisle in Congress who would vote for something that their party generally did not approve of, but they mm-hmm. believed this was morally right. Now that almost never happens. Yeah. You just go with the party line and it's hard enough even to get a speaker of the house elected these days. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad we can at least laugh about it a little here, right? right? Well, I don't know if this makes it feel even more old, but I was graduating high school when this book came out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I share that because at that time, I wasn't a believer. And I Mm. remember coming across this book, um, I, I think it may have been my junior year of college and just kind of mind blown um, over your explanation of grace. And so mm. I want to dive into that as I'm sure. currently reading uh, the 25th, you know, edition now, 25 right. year edition, and okay. it is different yet the same. And so for people here who are listening, I always start my episodes with people just sharing a little bit of how they came to know Christ. but you've written that in your memoir, Where the Light Fell. And so for people who maybe haven't read that, if you haven't, you please do. You won't be sad. Um, Share a little bit about the Christ you grew up hearing about and the Christ you came to know as a young adult. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm sure you've had people on your program who talk about uh, being rescued, being saved from drug addiction, alcohol, different things like that, life of crime. My story is a little different. My story is I was I was kind of saved from the church, <laughs> from, from a toxic, unhealthy church. Yep. And uh, yeah, it did some very good things. I learned the Bible. Right. There were good people there. It was a community. They looked after each other. But it had this version of the faith which was kind of a killjoy version. We were trying to be as legalistic as possible. We wanted to be more spiritual than anybody else. So anything that was at all questionable, we didn't do. You know, of course, when I grew up, nobody in the churches were drinking and smoking and or going to movies even. And then we just kept adding things onto it, making it more and more strict. No lipstick, no jewelry, uh, no slacks for women and all these different rules. And, and we thought that's what that's what Christianity was. It's it's wow. about uh, avoiding any appearance of evil. So if you go to a roller skating rink, it looks a little bit like they're dancing. So you better not do that. And if you go to a bowling alley, well, they drink in bowling alleys and people might think you're drinking, you know, so 
that kind of Christianity. And I, yeah, I understand that. And I could look back at it. It, it kept me from doing a lot of stupid things when I was young. So I have no <laughs> real resentment, but I, what I missed was just this message of grace, my mm-hmm. image of Jesus in, in Sunday school that I carried over in teenage years really was patting good people on the head saying, nice job, nice job. Here, you get a little gold star. You get a gold mm-hmm. star. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Jesus was about. Jesus was about finding good people and making them feel better. Mm. And and then later I started reading Jesus for myself in the Gospels. And my goodness, what a surprise. Jesus mm-hmm. was accused throughout his time on earth for hanging around the wrong kind of people. Yeah. Uh, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and and people like that. And it was the good people, the Pharisees, that he was mm-hmm. sternest about and sometimes pretty offensive. He would really call them out yes. on on their just their way of understanding God. And, and so I realized I, I've missed something key here. I've missed what I now see as the heart of the gospel, that it it's not about Arnie. God loving good people. Every religion says that. That's right. It's about God loving bad people, <laughs> God loving sinners, and Jesus coming for those people. And then I, I went back and saw that all the way through Jesus went toward the people on the edges that other people didn't want to be around, mm. offensive people, uh, either morally offensive, like the categories I mentioned, or um, marginalized by some disability, you know, even someone with leprosy where you weren't allowed to touch them and they had to wear a bell around their neck announcing, keep away, keep away, I'm a leper. Jesus was would go up to them and, and heal them and touch them. He mm. was just such a different character than what I took away from my childhood church. And so what, around what age did that really start happening? Because again, you lay that out in the book, but um, Mm -hmm. I think it's so vital for people sometimes to see that you can grow up in the church (laughs) your whole life and still have to really wrestle through uh, or unlearn some of those things that you've learned. Right. That would have been um, my high school years, right in the middle of high school. I um, The issue of race was key to me mm-hmm. because my church was a doctrinaire racist church that we would tell jokes about Martin Luther King, denounce him from the pulpit. He, I grew up in Atlanta. He was an Atlanta native and was in the news every day. Wow. But we, we saw him as this carpetbagger, this troublemaker, just stirring up trouble. And, and we I was taught in summer camps and in Sunday school that people of color were cursed by God. They were made to be a servant race and we should never mix with them and they would never really amount to anything. You can never have a an African-American doctor or CEO of a company or something. And you're a kid, that's what you hear from people you respect. Mm-hmm. So I su- assumed that was true. And, and I found out in a rather jolting way, it's not true at all. In fact, it's blasphemous, it's a, it's a lie. And um, that happened when I I got a summer internship at the the Center for Disease Control, called Mm. the Communicable Disease Center back then. And I walked in and I knew my boss was a PhD from an Ivy League school and and it was a black man and bells went off, ding, 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 ding. Wait a minute, my church church got it wrong. My church lied to me. What they told me about race is not true. And then later, just a couple of years later, I found out uh, a story about my father's death, which I tell 
in the memoir where the light fell where he he was in an iron lung because he contracted polio back in the polio epidemics and i knew that uh, he died when i was just a year old so i never knew him i had no right. conscious memory of him at all and i found out how he died he died because the church people the christians around him became convinced he would be healed and so they prayed and against all medical advice they removed him from the iron lung and he died I tell you, Amber, I started thinking, well, what can you trust? If you can't trust what the right. church says about race or about who's going to be healed and who's not, or all sorts of things about who Jesus is, maybe you can't trust the Bible. Maybe you can't trust anything. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so I went through this process of doubting. And now we would use the word deconstructing, reconstructing. We didn't know that back then. But that's what I've been doing, actually, as a writer, my entire career, because I had this huge foundation from my childhood, which was very faith-saturated, church-saturated, and then it started to crumble. And ever since, I've been picking up pieces of it, kind of dusting them off. What, what is true here? What can I stand behind? And what should I let go? What should I discard? Wow. And fortunately, I, I found writing as a way to do that. And I found that I'm not the only person with some of those questions. And, and for... 45 years have been making my living by just exploring one question of faith after another. Wow. And how God has gifted you with the ability to write words, Philip. Yeah. <laughs> we we have all been incredibly um, the benefactors of that. And so that's just a personal thank you. But with that said, when you think about dusting off this piece of of grace and what you believed about it um mm -hmm. or or maybe to the degree that you didn't even that didn't exist in your world right and you think back to the the initial writing of this how did you dust that off like what was it that maybe from your childhood that you found yourself working through as you started writing what's so amazing about grace and how it impacted the book what I took away from childhood was we have to behave in a certain way to get God to like us, mm. <laughs> to get God to accept us. And I found that grace is actually exactly the opposite. It's, it's uh, again, going back to Jesus, the people who were the most moral in his day, the Pharisees, who scrupulously tried to keep all 613 laws from the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus was the harshest on them. And it was the people, well, there was a famous story he told of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're in the synagogue mm -hmm. praying. And the tax collector says, man, I sure am glad I'm not like that tax, tax collector. The, the, the Pharisee says, man, I, I sure am glad I'm not like that sinful tax collector over there. Look, look at how I am. I'm a holy person. <laughs> and yeah. the tax collector just says, God have mercy on me. I've, I've got nothing to offer. And which prayer does God answer? And that's that kind of sums up grace and ungrace in, in, in one scene. And I learned a lot, Amber, from some friends in the recovery movement. I went to mm. some 12-step programs with them. Yeah. And they start every meeting by introducing themselves and telling what's wrong with them. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm and Judy, I'm a I'm a coke addict, you know. Yeah. That's that's if you if you say something like, "Hi, I'm Bob," and 
I used to have a problem with alcohol, but I overcame that. They will jump all over you because they know mm. you're about to fall off the wagon next. As soon as you think that, you you need that conscious dependence. And I came across a phrase, mm. I think it came from Henry Nouwen, who said, grace is a free gift of God. There's nothing you can do to earn it, to deserve it. By definition, that's what grace yeah. means. Yeah. But to receive a gift, you have to have your hands open. And the moral people, the Pharisee types, will have their hands in a fist. Well, I'm doing fine, thank you. I don't need extra help. I'm doing very well, better than 99% of the people in the world. And so grace just falls to the ground, doesn't get received. But it's the people who are really needy who admit, I can't make it. I need help. In, in the recovery movement, they talk about a higher power. Those are the people who have hands open saying, I know I'm needy. I know I can't do this on my own. I need help. And that's what grace that's a beautiful message of God's grace. It's exactly those people who God wants to lavish grace on. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Well, and I love that you write in the book that you talk a little bit about how hard it is to put words to grace. Mm, and. Yeah. I feel that. And I, I, it is one of those words where you just, you can't quite describe it. Mm -hmm. And so you say, so instead of, you know, I want to tell you about other people's experiences, that's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm going to do here to describe it. And, um, I mean, just, just a number of beautiful examples of God's mm -hmm. grace all throughout, but when you are speaking about it um, and you're trying to wrap or help someone else, you know, really wrap their mind around it. Is there a story that you particularly like to share that helps people really understand maybe the magnitude or the depth of grace? Hmm. Yes. Um, if I had to choose one, it would be the story of the prodigal son, Jesus story. And I retell hmm. that story in my book, and I, it's a young girl in my case, in my reimagining of it, yeah. who lives in Michigan, up in Traverse City, where they grow a lot of cherry trees. And she gets tired of the churchy parents around her, and she takes off and ends up in Detroit working and runs into a pimp and ends up working, uh, being sexually exploited. And, and then she wants to go home, but she knows they'll not accept me. Look at me. Look at my life. And and I don't want to ruin the story for people, but <laughs> that you look at Jesus' stories, and he, in almost every case, the unpredictable person is the hero of the story. The, the wrong person is the hero. 
So, um, you know, the tax collector, the sinner, the, the tax collector who is the sinner, or the Pharisee, which one is the hero? Well, it's the sinner, it's the tax collector. And in this story, you've got one obedient son who does what he's supposed to, mm-hmm. who obeys his father, who works hard in the vineyard. And then you've got this uh, prodigal son who wants, he wants his inheritance now, which was very offensive. It's like saying to your father, I wish you were dead so I could get my share of the yeah. inheritance. And then he goes and squanders it and is working in a pig pen and finally crawls back. And and the story is, as Jesus tells it, the father was standing there waiting. Probably every day he's out there scanning the horizon. Could this be the day that my son comes back? And that's the picture of grace. And it's it's shocking. It, it really is a story about the prodigal father, <laughs> the father who's giving everything away, just wanting, wanting to reestablish that broken relationship. Mm. And, you know, he didn't say, OK, we got to set some rules now here. You got to be different now or uh, pay me back first and then we can talk about whether you're welcome in this family. He didn't do that. He, he ran. Very unusual for a distinguished patriarch in those days. That's right. He ran to meet the son, threw his arms around him and said, we're, we're going to party tonight. There's a feast. My, my son was lost and now he's home. That's Jesus showing what the father is like. I know what God is like. I'm the son of God. And here, let me tell you stories that show you what my father is really like. No, and it is so interesting how somehow in church settings, and I, I don't want to say every church, but definitely some churches I've been a part of, we somehow still flip all of those stories around yeah, to do. make it applications about how can we be like that person when we really miss the point a lot of times, right? Yeah, I, I decided that we're just instinctively ungraced people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you talk, you that's your word. <laughs> yeah, it's a word I coined. I don't know if it's a good word or not, but it, it gets across the point. Um, I mean, look at look at society, especially a, a high competitive capitalist society like the United States. You know, we, we're all trying to wear the right jeans and have the right cell phone and go to the right schools and and mm. have, have the right house and the right car. You know, we're just getting broadest all day long with these messages about this. This is how you rank. This is how you mm. count in the world. And then here comes Jesus who says, uh, excuse me, it's, let me turn this world upside down. And he goes to the needy. He goes to the people who don't count, who don't mm-hmm. uh, rank in that society, like those with leprosy or disabilities and lavishes love on them. So it's a it, it's a revolution that Jesus set in motion. And sometimes the church hears that tune, Amazing Grace, and sometimes it does. And by the way, this is the 250th anniversary of uh, the hymn, Amazing Grace. When it is was, it really? Yeah, it is. Uh, of course, it was written by a slave trader. I yeah. mean, imagine that wouldn't you love to interview him on your show? Yes. <laughs> From slave trader to someone who Experience. first encountered, Grace. experienced, mm-hmm. and then permanently set it loose. And and that, you know, that hymn still gets me every time I hear it. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I, I don't want to just keep drilling the point home, but I'm going to, because there's something that you write in one of um, the chapters, the new math of Grace. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, and you write, 
we risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirement for a perfect life. And so will you speak a little bit to how we often miss the point of that parable and um, yeah, the reality that God's grace is available to all? Yeah, actually, it kind of echoes what I just mentioned about the prodigal son. It's a, it's a similar concept. And Jesus kept looking for new ways to get that across. And, and this one should speak to people in America. <laughs> uh, I mean, imagine uh, you need a job. And so for a few weeks or so, you decided, well, I'll just I'll do some temporary work. And that'll at least give me enough money to put food mm -hmm. on the table. So you go to this place and you stand there in line. And at eight o'clock, some people come along and say, I got, I need some help with construction. And then at nine o'clock, somebody comes along and says, I need some help uh, planting strawberries. And, and throughout the day, these people come and they're looking for employees. And, and then toward the end of the day, five o'clock, you know, almost sunset, <laughs> uh, this person comes along and says, um, I, I need help moving some lumber from one place to another. It's not a big pile, just just need a couple guys to lend me a hand. And then you come back at the end of the day and the person, the agent who arranged all this is, is passing out money and he pays the person who started at five o'clock and only works for one hour, the same as the person who started at eight o'clock and worked on construction all day. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction? What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is unfair. For sure. And, yeah. And, and we would all think that. And of course, that was Jesus' point. But interestingly, in the parable where God is represented by the foreman, the foreman says, um, don't I have the right to be generous to anyone I want to? He didn't say, nobody got cheated. The person who started at eight o'clock got exactly the pay that he was promised. It was a contract deal. Mm. But he said, don't I have the right to be to be generous, mm. to go to the least likely people, the undeserving people. That is what grace is all about. You asked me, uh, is there a modern story? The, the funny one, I was returning a rental car one time and I was late. This is in Los Angeles. I got caught in tra traffic and showed up late. And I thought, now they're going to charge you for a whole extra day. And it wasn't my fault. It was the traffic's fault. So I was kind of upset. And I put the keys down and the woman at the Hertz desk said, okay, that's it. I said, well, I, I'm late. Do I owe any more? And she looks at it again. She says, well, no, we have a one hour grace period. I said, oh, what is that? What is grace? And I, I really don't think they cover that in the Hertz training manuals. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? She said, she said, well, I don't know. I, I guess it means that even though you're supposed to owe us money, you don't have to. Hmm. So well, that's that's a pretty good start to understanding what grace is about. Um, it's about having our debts forgiven, yeah. not by something that we did, but That's because right. of who God is. God is that generous foreman who looks for ways to lavish forgiveness and love and gifts on, on us. Yeah. And aren't we glad it's not a thing of earning or fairness per se? Yeah. Um, I've heard the uh, musician Bono of you two mm -hmm. talk about this. In fact, uh, I read a book he wrote along with an agnostic French journalist. And the mm. journalist is trying to figure out why would this guy who's very cool 
why would he keep talking about <laughs> Jesus? Why does he claim to be a Christian? You know? Yeah. And, and so Bono is trying to explain grace to him. And at the end, he says, when, when it boils down, you got two choices. You can either run the world by karma or by grace. Mm. And I'm going to cast my lot with grace. And I think, well, that's a good way of saying it. You know, the world, in a sense, you could say karma is ungrace. You know, karma is you get exactly what you deserve. Yeah. So the, you know, the Hindus say, I mean, you may spend 7,000 different incarnations trying to work off all your sins, but eventually it'll, it'll be fair. It'll be just, you'll get exactly what you deserve. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, I got a way where you, none of you get what you deserve. You deserve God's wrath. You get God's love. You deserve punishment. You get forgiveness. It's the way of grace, not mm. karma. And that sounds like good news, Mano says, and I, I got to agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree too, for sure. <laughs> well, when you think about grace and people like us who do live in a capitalistic society or someone like myself who, you know, I'm still raising three young mm. children yeah. and always trying to find that, I don't want to say balance may not be the word, Um because when I think about if one of my children were, you know, to be a prodigal and then run home, what would be my response? I would hope my response would be to welcome mm. them. Yeah. Yet then in my training of my children now, there are consequences and discipline. And so Absolutely. as believers, like how do like any encouragement for us trying to live in that tension of you know, you want to be a grace-filled, grace-showing person and uh, fully accept the fact that we have not earned God's favor, but he has lavished it on us mm -hmm. through grace and not get caught up in the fact of like, we still do have to discipline and train. Do you know what yes, I'm saying? For sure. Yeah, it's kind of like a pendulum goes back and forth, Amber. Yeah, I mean, balance yeah. is, is not far off. It is kind of a balance. And if you look at the New Testament, uh, they were facing that right away. So if you look at Galatians, Book of Galatians, which Paul wrote, um, they were a church much like the one I grew up at. They went by mm -hmm. the rules. And in fact, they had more rules than my church because they applied the whole Jewish wow. Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew Old Testament. <laughs> From circumcision, that was the big issue. And what diet you, you know, what foods you can eat, what foods you can't eat. So, you know, two of my favorite foods are uh, scallops and lobster, which I only get like on my birthday because they're so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, And a lot more expensive now than they were in 1997, that's right, Philip? <laughs> that's right. But uh, the, the Galatians weren't eating shellfish you know because that was mentioned in in the book of deuteronomy and and leviticus so paul is you'll never find paul more upset and angry you mm. foolish galatians he starts out and just rips into them he i don't really know greek to this degree but some of the greek scholars will say he's actually using he's using almost profanity mm. he's so upset about yeah them. you know you you are wrong but then you go right over one of its neighbor books, First Corinthians, and you've got these people who are kind of uh, making the communion table, making the Lord's table, kind of an orgy, you know, where yes. they're just, you know, eating and drinking and having right. a good Extremes. time. Extremes. Extremes. And, and then there's somebody in there who's living with his mother-in-law, you know, or something like that. And again, Paul, there's the angry Paul again saying, this, you're, 
you're taking trying to take advantage of something you can't be a serious follower of jesus if you do something like that it, it's so clear and there are times and when i wrote the book I, I had my kind of church in mind when we were hung up on legalism and stuff you could make the case that now so many of those things that were considered wrong when i grew up hip christians do all the time and maybe maybe we need another wave of reminding well wait a minute if you are indeed, if you indeed experience God's grace truly, as Paul says in Romans six, seven, and eight, then then you're not going to look for a way to exploit it. You'll, yeah, you didn't get it at all. And all he can say in response is, "God forbid." You know, you, don't, you can't really reason it out because it it is a free gift. But he says, if if you're acting like that. I have to question whether it ever entered you, whether you were transformed at all, whether you really want a relationship with God, because the way you're behaving right now is going to interfere with that relationship. So you got to either straighten out or just give the whole thing up. You know, mm. you, you, you're really not understanding what the gospel, the transforming gospel is. It's not just a one-time deal. Okay. got that over with. Yeah. It's a way of following Jesus. It's a, it's a forever. way. Yes. Forever. Yeah, I mean, I think, too, when I consider this, I always go back to pay attention to the way Jesus lived. He mm, was right. he was curious about people. Yes, he already knew everything, but he always was curious about what was going on. You know, he was asking questions. He was engaging and he was correcting and extending grace. And so... Yeah. I think if that is our always the place that we come back to the centering point of what what do we see him do in life yeah. that helps. Yeah. Just yesterday I happened to be leading a, a Bible study and, and we had read the entire upper room hmm. discourse uh, account. Yeah, it's called a discourse in John, John 13 through 17. Hmm. So in preparation, everybody had read it. And we were thinking, okay, now Jesus is, this is his last shot. He knows this is the last full time that he's got to turn over the mission and remind the disciples of what he set in motion. It was a very emotional time. The, the disciples, they were still kind of glowing about Palm Sunday, you know, last Sunday <laughs> and the triumphal entry and all that. And Jesus is concentrating on what he's about to go through with the yeah. cross and his, and being killed. And, and, Yet he slows down. He's very gentle. He's very patient. He doesn't scold them. He just works it through. And when I look at that, okay, what if I'm in charge of a company and I'm about to retire and I have my last shot with my vice presidents and I bring them together? What would I do? You know, what, what would I say? I think of Jesus. He's about to set in loose, set loose a movement that will eventually encompass 2.7 billion people in the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's he going to do? If I were in the, in the corporate world, I would have a vision statement and uh, you know, 12 goals and, and have a hierarchy of who to, who should be in charge of what. And, you know, that's what we do in, in our organization yes. today. What did Jesus do? Well, I go back over there and he, he basically gave them three, three models. One is, is, being a servant, you're you're here to serve people, not to rule over them. And he washed mm -hmm. their feet, and you know mm -hmm. they were trying to figure this out. What you're washing my feet? That's a servant's job. Yeah, that's the point. You're here to serve others. And then he talked about love. He said the mark 
of a Christian, the mark of a follower of me, is love. By mm. That's how people will know that you're mine, because you love them. And then the last thing is the unity. Uh, I, I want, I mean, he's sitting there praying. And he said, I remember, I remember, Father, speaking to God, the unity we had before the world began. <laughs> it's a long memory. Before the, <laughs> before, and, and then he said, that's what I want for my followers. So wow. service, love, and unity. That's what he gave us that last night. And I go back to where we started at Amber. Uh, why did I write this book 25 years ago? Because when I would ask people, what's a Christian? What's a Jesus follower? They didn't come up with those kinds of words. They came up with mm. different words, you know, holier than thou or anti or whatever. And and we need to go back. And if we're not showing that, then are we really following Jesus? Uh, mm. That's what we need to concentrate on. And somehow in our churches get across. And when you do that, if those were the three things that we held up and just ask God for, for the energy and the ability to do those each day, it, it could change not only the reputation of the church, but change the people in the church. Because mm. we don't have to prove that we're right or on this yeah. particular issue. And, and we don't have to categorize these are bad people, these are good people. We can go about as Jesus did, serving, showing love, and being unified one with one another. Mm. Gosh, that is, yes. I, I love that imagery of Jesus talking to them. And then it really is the upside down kingdom that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. yeah. It's so opposite. And I've watched my husband go on this journey as someone who is in, you know, over employees and mm. just tried at times to do it in, you know, the manner that we would think organizations run. And of course he still has to do some of that. Yeah. And then I've seen him totally do a 180 and start viewing it through the lens of service and love. Mm. And it's been really extraordinary. Now, is everybody in his office saved? No. <laughs> but again, the willingness to trust and have a conversation with him is there. And yeah. isn't that, I mean, that is so much of what a Christian should demonstrate, right? Like, yeah. I trust you enough to want to share things with mm -hmm. and in a company like your your husband's case you're kind of thrust in with people who maybe vote differently than you do maybe a different race you know all the and and that's how you get to exercise those things like service right. and love and unity it is unfortunately in the church often we tend to gravitate toward people who are like us yeah and and what we really need to be doing is like jesus i mean i i put myself back in jesus day jesus knew what god had in mind with the human race and how offensive it must have been for him to walk among these people and seeing them cheat each other and sleep with each other's wives and do this kind of stuff. That was morally offensive. And yet it was to those very people, tax collectors, the adulterers, who, who Jesus would hang out with mm. because he knew he had something they need. They didn't necessarily know that, but his job was to show them mm. why they needed it. And you can't do that if you if you just charge right in saying, you're a sinner, get out of here. I don't want to be anywhere near you. you know, that just doesn't work. You you do that by showing them love and acceptance and, and what your husband has been trying to put into practice. Mm. Well, let's close with this. In light of what you just said, and then going back to the beginning of our conversation where it feels like 
I think a lot uh, around us, people feel like the world is just blowing up. Yeah. And I mean, I guess to some degree it is. I don't know right. though. My my daughter, um, sorry, this is a side note. We were just reading or studying Samuel right now. And uh, she asked me, mom, what are foreskins? <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> and so then we're talking about the battle where Saul, you know, commands David to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and bring back just the way my husband describes it is it's like an Indian, you know, bring back the scalps. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> and I said, is it really that much worse? <laughs> yeah. Are we well, that much worse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. The weapons have gotten a lot tougher and meaner. Over yes, the we so. are worse. I mean, yeah. in, in a lot of ways uh, in the chaos of it, but um, yeah, that's just a side note. Cause as I was explaining that to her last night, I thought, Oh goodness. That, that's pretty that's pretty rough too. That's pretty rough. It is. But um when you think about you know loving, serving, and um in light of just what's going on all around mm -hmm. our world, how would you encourage people to demonstrate that grace in their day-to-day -day lives? I guess I would just underscore um look for people who are different than you are. Look for mm -hmm. people who are challenging. I think how the church handled the coronavirus, the COVID-19 outbreak. Mm. It wasn't a pretty picture in the history mm. of the church because here we had a chance to give God's comfort. What should we do to people who are suffering? Well, Paul is very clear about that in 2 Corinthians 1. Mm. He says, take the comfort you have received from the God of all comfort, the mm. Father of compassion, and spread that comfort abroad. And instead, the church was right at the at the front of the divisions. You know, should we wear masks? Should we get vaccines? Uh, they can't tell me not to go to church. You know, that that was kind of the the attitude that many people saw in the church. And mm -hmm. it's not like we're running for a popularity contrast contest. We're not trying to protect the church's reputation. What we're trying to do is show what God is like. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Jesus said, "I'll go so far as to say." love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And I'm sure his disciples said, love your enemies. What, what, what a crazy thing. They're enemies. How can you love them? Why would you do such a, such a thing? Mm. And Jesus' answer was, well, because that's the only way the world will know what your father is like. God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on good people and bad people alike, the righteous and the sinners alike. And that's counterintuitive. We live in an ungraced world. And the only way people will understand that God is if you do something like that. <laughs> if you yes. find somebody that votes in a way that just offends you and you and appalls you, and you sit down with them and say, you know, I think we're on different sides, but I'd really love to hear your viewpoint. I'm not going to refute. I'm not even going to respond. I'm just going to say, I, I'm curious. I want to understand how you think because I care about you. Uh, could you just describe this for me? Yeah, I mean, who's doing that these days? Well, the, yeah. we should be doing that. Um, or, you know, whether it's a race issue or, you know, we have so many divisions and so many challenge points, immigrants, whatever, in our country. Uh, yes, we, we do have to make decisions about laws and stuff like that. But, but Jesus really concentrated on the people first <laughs> mm -hmm. and let other people worry about the, the politics. You, you don't yeah. find Jesus spending much time with politics, but he knew how to handle enemies. He knew how to handle immigrants. He knew how to hand, 
handle people of different races. He knew how to handle immoral people by showing mm-hmm. them love and grace and attention and curiosity. And and it, we who, who are his followers should do the same thing. Mm. Well, Philip, again, thank you uh, so much for being here. What you just said reminds me actually of something Tim Keller said about his church in New York. He said, you know, Everybody in New York City may not know Christ, but we would like for them to at least be thankful that Redeemer is here. Oh, that's great. That's and great. Um, that's, I mean, that is ended, ended up being what happened, honestly, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so we want to be known for mm-hmm. our love and our grace and our compassion. And so yeah. everyone go and share a little bit of grace, seek out someone that's a little bit different than you and, uh, mm-hmm. and read what's so amazing about grace if you haven't but thank you (laughs) so much philip for being here today i appreciate you yes that's a great way to end um paul used the image of of an aroma you know what we Mm -hmm. we leave off different scents in the world this is the kind of scent that people want to go oh no not one of those or is it oh i'd like to i'd like some of that um (sighs) you know there there it is and uh it's a good thing to ask ourselves each day what kind of scent are we leaving around us as followers of Jesus? Mm. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. This was one of those conversations that will stick with me for a while. You can get the updated and revised edition of What's So Amazing About Grace at the link in my show notes. Remember, purchasing from those links provides a small payout to me at no cost to you. And don't forget to add eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me to your to-be-read list. You can get the list at graceenoughpodcast.com slash books. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.